just, I was so ready and so hungry that I just, like anything that I could do, I took on. Any wow. opportunity that I saw, I'm like, I'm going to do this and I'm going to make the best of this. And in a short time, I was working on some of the best business with the best people and never really turned back from there in terms of the advertising business. Hey, this is Paul Sponsia, and welcome to the Made Right Here podcast. Today's episode one of two is really unique for a lot of reasons. We're delving into the Hard Knocks pizza story, which is interesting since I'm part of that story with my wife. But episode one is with Jill and Dean. So this is actually an interesting, um, an ex- something interesting we're doing where we're actually talking to two people at the same time and weaving their stories together. So you're going to hear about how their backgrounds are so different, um, how they were raised. You're going to hear a little bit about how Dean's background really influences the beginning of Hard Knocks, uh, fast forwarding 50 years or so, uh, how they met. They're both from the advertising industry, which is fascinating. And Dean has actually worked on some major projects that we would know about. Uh, and Jill has worked in the automotive industry for a lot of years. They're, neither one of them are doing that now. but. So listen to episode one as we begin to weave the Hard Knock story together with Jill and Dean. All right, so super fun today. This is a different, a little different podcast for me in a couple of different ways. One, because these people sold me and my wife their company and became, good, became good friends along the way. And because it's a couple, which I haven't done yet. So Dean Bastian and Jill Johnson, formerly the owners of Hard Knocks Pizza. And so thanks for being with me and on the podcast from sunny Tampa, Florida. Well, thank you. Happy to help you out and flattered that you wanted us to participate. I'm excited to have you guys. So like I said, I just would love to know either one of you can start either way, however you want to do it. Just tell me a little bit about life growing up, where you grew up and like what your family was like and what it was like growing up where you grew up and then like who really made a big impression on your life in those early years of your life. So Jill, if you want to start, that'd be great. Yeah, I grew up in a suburb, Northern suburb of Detroit, about 40 miles door to door down to downtown Detroit, if you will, due North in Rochester, Michigan. I was born and raised in the same town. My grandpa was born and raised in and my mom and that her whole family were born and raised in. Wow. And I, went to college in the same town, Oakland University. So it was like, it was all built in. So it was like cradle to grave. It was a really tiny little town. It's grown considerably over the decades and it's quite an idyllic setting, you know, very community focused and people who are from there typically stay in that area because it's just a really great place to grow up and raise a family and it's fun. And it's got a lot of great shopping and restaurants and I was in the Christmas parade because I was in the marching band in high school. And so like, I just participated in a lot of that. And and I had a blast, worked at a local swim club one year as a lifeguard. And again, just got to know a lot of people in the community through all those activities. I would imagine if you're, if you have such a family legacy there, your family probably knew a lot of people and yeah. like how big, like 50,000 people, hundred thousand people. How big was it when you were there? Do you, think? you know, probably like there were two high schools there. Now there's three. So okay. what would that be? 150,000 people-ish? Yeah, maybe something more. like that, maybe. Yeah. 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 Okay. Yeah. What did your parents do? 
my mom was a court reporter and my dad was a computer programmer analyst. So he like literally learned on like punch cards, punch cards a yeah. company called secure data. And then he had a couple other jobs in the Detroit area in computers. That's what it was called. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's hard to believe probably too, because that would have been the seventies probably. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So nobody knew the, I think most of us think of computers nineties after, but yeah, that's pretty wild. No, nobody yeah. probably, I'm sure that job was like, what does your dad do? He's a computer programmer. People are like, what is, yeah. <laughs> what is I think it was more like, it was called data processing. Data processing. Like yeah. 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 Well, that's cool. And yeah. they, did you grow up both of them married the whole time or no? They were both married prior. Okay. And he is my stepdad. Your stepdad. Okay. And he had three kids from his first marriage. Oh, cool. So they met and I was a baby when they met and they fell in love and he proposed over a gallon of milk in the farmer jack. <laughs> so romantic. Wow. That's <laughs> awesome. So married. That's awesome. And they're still married. They're oh, still oh, married. Cool. 40, what is it? 49 years? Oh, that's yeah. oh, 50, 50 years coming up. Yeah. 50 years in 2023. Yeah. They live wow. about 20 minutes from us. Yeah. Oh, they're in Florida. Yeah. Oh, that's cool. partially why we're here. Yeah. Nice. Okay. And you have, do you have any siblings? Did they have any kids together? Or? No, they didn't have no. any kids okay. together. So you have three nice. step, older step sisters or brothers or something yes. like that. Okay. Yeah. Well, who, so Jill, when you look back and think about those early years, and I love a little bit of your story as we get into it, kind of the, where you ended up versus where you thought you'd end up. So, well, who was influencing, like, who's the big influences and how are they influencing you? I would say my mom and my grandparents were probably the biggest influences in my life. And I would say from a spiritual perspective, my grandparents played a significant role in my upbringing and my, like I spent summers with them in Northern Michigan. Mm. So they had a big garden and we'd go out fishing. And so it was a lot of, again, very idyllic Mm. setting as it, as all during my childhood. And then I think my mom, because she never pulled any punches with me. And she was like, I remember when I told her, I'm not going back to college after my first year. And she was like, okay, do whatever you want to do. And it it was like reverse psychology. She did that off and on over the course of my adolescent years, we'll call it. And I think it really gave me the belief that I had the ability to make decisions for myself. Mm -hmm. She wasn't forcing me. She wasn't persuading me in any way. But at a very early age, I don't know what she saw in me, but she kind of planted this seed about like being a nurse. And that stuck with me. I think I was probably six years old when she made some comment about that. And that just kind of rolled in my head over and over. And I've always wanted to pursue something like that and have tried a couple of times and it just hasn't (laughs) come to fruition. So maybe I'm just out of the time. So she married an old guy. So eventually she's going to be nursing. She'll be nursing you. We're all good with. So Alexa says too. She's like, wait a second. Yeah. I want to be taking care of you. That's right. <laughs> do you, think, do you think, Jill, there was something in a nurturing in you that she saw? I mean, what do you think it was that she was really seeing? Yeah. Well, she used to talk about, this is funny. She would say, well, you're a night person. So you could work the night shift. All the patients would be asleep. You could get breakfast at the hospital before you left and then go home and take a long nap. But like she made, she romanticized it in a way huh. just really was like, oh my gosh, what a cool job that would be. And then 
I would visit, my grandma had a lot of surgeries and off and on in my childhood and we would go visit her in the hospital. And I loved how hospitals smelled. I just loved really? it. And I just wanted to be in a hospital environment and like, I don't know, I just did. And then I ended up in jobs part-time in high school that I was in a medical environment. I was huh. a dental assistant with my dentist. And then I worked in an ophthalmic office and I worked in their OR. They did cataract surgery. In high school? So I, Yeah. And in college, crazy. I was the OR tech. Wow. Yeah. So at a young age, I was really kind of thrust into these roles. And I don't think I appreciated it for what it probably was directing me. I just, Mm -hmm. and I was like, path of least resistance. I got an A in public speaking. That's what I'm going for. And it was kind of like, how soon can I get done with school? (laughs) (laughs) Instead of reversing my career path. You know what I always find interesting when I do these interviews, especially those of us that are kind of 60s and 70s and before, and even grew up in the 80s a little bit, is the, you said it, but the word independence. I think there was a lot of, our parents were generally the opposite of helicopter parents. And life was, I guess, slightly different too. We didn't know as much and just weren't as many people in the world. So I guess there wasn't as much as a percentage crime, but I think it's always interesting that there's this the level of independence that we were given created a tremendous amount of independence in us and our ability to go, go do things. Absolutely. And it was all my choice. And I just didn't have the patience. I'm not a patient person at all in anything. Haven't ever been, will never be. I, it's hmm. something I struggle with. It's kind of like my Achilles heel, I would say, one of them. And I'm always challenged in that area. And hmm. so or my perseverance is challenged in certain things that I attempt. And if it doesn't come natural or if I don't feel like working hard enough for it, I just, I'm like, Oh, moving on to something else. That's more fun. So it's, I don't mean to sound flippant about career choice, but I ended up going with my strengths because I was challenged in math and chemistry. And I just, I, it would have taken a lot to get those hurdles. Yeah. And I didn't enjoy it, that Mm. part of it. I liked the biology part. I didn't like that part. So there was, it was kind of the, which side of the coin did I want Mm -hmm. to go? I know there's you, I remember this and I want to flip a little bit to Dean and his upbringing, but I feel like you had some pretty significant restaurant experience too, right? Didn't you work in some restaurants growing up or something? I waitressed in college as a part-time job when my senior year, when I, couldn't fit the medical office hours into my schedule. I needed okay. more flexibility. So I waited tables, bar, that kind of thing. And then I also worked off and on. Oddly, I knew somebody who owned the little like diner thing, burger thing in the bowling alley. And so I would go <laughs> work there like Friday nights or Saturday nights every now and then and flip burgers and serve Coke and French fries and stuff. Yeah. And so I had a little bit of experience with that. And then that was really all my restaurant experience until I started working for Ruby Tuesday. Yeah. Oh yeah. We will get to that part of the story. All right, Dean. Yeah. So we got Michigan and now we got Ohio, which that was a big game last weekend. Unfortunately, Jill's a Michigan State fan. Okay. When Ohio State plays Michigan, we're in sync because she hates Michigan as much as I do. That's good. That's good. Yeah, I grew up in in really central Ohio. It's a 
small farm town called Asheville. When I was a kid, it was it definitely reminded me of Mayberry. Brick streets, one cop, one traffic light. It's about a mile square. A mile square. It's grown since I've left. It's two miles now. I'd say now it's more like Mayberry on meth, but (laughs) yeah, it is. You know, which is a lot of what's happening, small towns, but identical twin, born on the 4th of July, son of a funeral director. As I like to say, I'm a freak of nature. And that really... It's wild. You know, those three things kind of had a lot to do with how I grew up. And I've got stories that would curl your hair about my father's business, but... Um, yeah, it was an interesting childhood. We had, like we, you talked earlier, we had a lot of freedom. Mm. I remember probably at five years old getting a bike and just getting on that bike and going. Yeah. Never, nobody cared. No, there was no, at that point, there wasn't any concern for anybody's welfare. And mm. it was, uh, Be home for dinner? Yeah, there was, it was country around us. It was a farming town. And there was a creek about maybe a quarter mile behind our house and that was our playground Mm. and my mother would come out to the hill that overlooked the creek and she would call us for dinner and that's how we knew it was dinner time (laughs) i remember my dad my dad did the same thing yeah yelling my name (laughs) yeah but uh, you know i mean it was uh i felt blessed and i still do about growing up there i but town like that you really have to get out of at some point yeah it's very bruce springsteen right yeah. I was born in a small um, town. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, my dad's business, he was the funeral director and he also ran the ambulance, which is what hmm. funeral directors back then used to do. There wasn't an EMS or some kind of separate ambulance service. So it was a 24-hour, seven-day-a-week business. He was on call all the time. And growing up, we, I think, all, myself and my brothers all saw that and were like, okay, this is not a job for us. Yeah. You'll never get out of this town. Beyond Did you guys the, live attached to the, to the funeral home? The, yeah, we lived on the second story of it up until we were about 13. So, yeah, the first story was the actual funeral service area. Mm-hmm. And then behind the house was the embalming room and the casket mm-hmm. showroom. So it was a one-stop shop kind of uh, funeral emporium. And I don't know when I realized that this was weird. But because you grow up in it, and you're like, well, doesn't everyone live like this? I have dead bodies on the first floor. Oh, um, my gosh. I remember, dude, I can't, I, I've got to remember somebody that's been on this podcast worked for a funeral home uh-huh. as a young kid, not a young kid, but like high college or something like that. And they were telling me about sleeping. They had to like work there overnight or yeah. something like that. Yeah. yeah. And like how freaked, how freaked yeah. out they were about staying there yeah. overnight. We didn't have play dates. There were no kids coming to our house. So, yeah, it was a small town, identical twin, which created its own kind of interesting. Yeah. What's what's your twin's name? Dale. Dale. Dale and Dean. Yeah. So names that are close to. Yeah. Yeah. We got a lot of Chip and Dale. (laughs) Yeah. Got a lot of that. (laughs) Other brothers, too? You have another brother? I have an older brother, Jay. Okay. So three boys. Okay. Yeah. Jay was, you know, uh, firstborn, obviously, and. Back then, this was 1953 when I was born, my parents didn't even know they were having twins. Wow. Yeah. No, the the doctor was like, you're awfully big. You could be having twins, but there was no diagnosis for that. So one day they had one child and they said, yeah, three, under the age of three and and a business to run because they both ran the business. 
Wow. So their life got a lot more complex when we were born. Wow. So I don't know if, any, I mean, obviously you were there, but we're being born, but was it like you're delivering a baby and they're like, oh, wait, there's another. Like, is that how they find yeah. out they have yeah. twins? Yeah. Yeah. We were born three minutes apart, so they didn't have to wait long. Yeah. That is nuts. The, God, uh, the town once a year has this four day, 4th of July celebration. And it's parades and floats and fireworks and a carnival. And it's been going on for like a hundred years. Fish fry. Wow. It's big fish fry. And so, yeah, the, they announced our birth at the, at the 4th July carnival. <laughs> Mr. Misson, Warren Bastion just had big twins. <laughs> so from day one, we were kind of well-known. Town, for, town, town folklore. Yeah, plus the fact that he was a general director made it. Made yeah, it yeah. But, uh, they are, at this point, your parents a lot, not a lot? Yeah, both, they, of, both of them yeah. passed away? Okay. Mm-hmm. And where are your brothers? My twin brother's in Carmel Valley, California. Nice. Good place nice, to be. Yeah. And my older brother, Jay, living in Charlotte now. Charlotte, Charlotte. North Carolina. Cool. Yeah. So you mentioned that uh, Mr. Dave Dill had a very extremely yeah. had a profound influence on you. I'd love to. I would love for you to tell why, because I think yeah. it's a really cool reason why. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, I wasn't good academically at school, and I never really understood why until later in life. And I think it was some kind of dyslexia. Yeah. I wasn't good with numbers. Math just completely boggled my head. So I started gravitating to art. My mother was a great classically trained painter. And I used to spend a lot of time watching her paint. I was never a great painter, but I was intrigued by the world of art. And But I think I was more intrigued by commercial applications of it, even though I didn't know what that was or what that meant. And unfortunately, my mother, like one point early high school, said, you should really think about being a commercial artist. And I'm like... Okay, what is that? Because I've never heard anything like that. And he said, well, Dave Dill, who lives outside of town, is a commercial artist. And he went to Central Academy of Commercial Art in Cincinnati. And he works for an ad agency in Columbus as an art director. I'm like, okay, well, this sounds intriguing. He's driving this really cool Thunderbird. He's got this great house outside of town. He dresses cool. That was enough for me. I thought, I don't know where this is going to go. But it's not college, which I didn't want. Yeah. Uh, it was a two and a half year school. Hmm. And so I went down and where he went to school in Cincinnati and interviewed and they accepted me. And in the, after I graduated from high school, I got started there. That's pretty cool. Hey, one yeah. f- going back just a second. You said your mom was a classically trained yeah, painter. Yeah, Like, yes. what, what, yeah. Is, what did she paint? And do you have any of it? She uh, painted in oils, mostly, although she did acrylics and watercolor as well. She, a lot of landscapes, hmm. a lot of landscapes. The, she, I think, tried to make somewhat of a business out of it by painting kind of local, iconic kind of landscapes and landmarks. There was a, when we were growing up, there was a covered bridge right outside of town that in, I don't know, the early 60s, they decided to tear it down and replace it with a nondescript bridge so she had pictures of that and i think she painted probably a hundred pictures of that cover oh, bridge and sold it to wow. people yeah that's cool yeah. which i have the original i was gonna say do you have house. any of her art you do yeah. oh yeah wow. but she well you know she won a lot of awards i mean really she was very talented and probably could have had just a great career but yeah. she was also running the business with my dad she yeah played the organ at the funeral she did the lady's hair she did the books so wow. 
And then she tried to raise us. So, yeah. Were they both from there, Dean? Were they both? No, from no. They, they grew up in Ohio. She was a daughter of a Methodist minister. And they moved around a lot, probably. Yeah, Methodist yeah. ministers move every, I don't know, five or so years. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure why, but that happened. And so they moved around pretty much around all of Ohio. And then my dad grew up in Marion, Ohio, which is just north of Columbus. Mm-hmm. He went to the war. I think he was he grew up in the Depression. They didn't have a lot of money. I think he joined the army to get the GI Bill and have mm-hmm. a meal every day and ended up being a cook in the army stationed in Iran, but then came home and decided after growing up in this small town and seeing if the local undertaker during the depression drove a Cadillac and wore a suit, he figured that'd be a good business. Yeah. So he came back and went to mortuary school and got his license to, to be an embalmer and got started, I think in Marion and working for someone. And then one of his army buddies called him one day who lived in Asheville and said, Hey, this guy's selling his, your home if you're interested so they both went down and moved there not too soon after that and they told me they moved there with 50 dollars in their pocket wow and they really built a business because back then the funeral business was done in either a church or a home there was no Mm -hmm. funeral home so they took this old home that he lived in and turned it into a funeral home and did a nice had a nice career and a nice business that's pretty cool yeah well i know there is a really interesting tie-in to pizza with your family oh, yeah. so uh, yeah. tell us how that well that like connection. i said he was in the war and he got exposed to in italy to this thing called pizza which really was not much of a thing back in the you know late 40s early 50s in the united states i think there probably was some pizza in new york but for the most part the country was pretty unexposed to it and so over the course of our childhood, on Friday nights, every once in a while, he'd break out the Chef Boyardee pizza kit and make <laughs> pizza at home. And that kit was like a, I think it was like a bag of dough mix and maybe a yeah. can of sauce. And But he would add mozzarella and pepperoni and peppers. And it was great. And yeah. it really was probably one of the better times that we had as a family. Because mm. we didn't have a lot of, I would say, a lot of fun. Yeah. yeah. Well, especially forget personalities or anything, but just, I mean, yeah, pretty, no, it's a pretty, it was I don't a know, really grim environment, really more, morbid yeah. kind of job. Well, he was also just a, he was a tough guy to live with. So I think, it, I don't think he, I think growing up the depression hardened him. Yeah. And, and going to see it, going to a war. I mean, yeah. all that stuff. That's tough. Yeah. yeah. But I mean, he, I know he struggled with the fact that we like to play. Yeah. Seriously. And that's because he didn't play. He worked his entire life yeah. gardening, whatever it was, and mm-hmm. get food on the table. So he was, for the most part, at least the home life, it was difficult. But again, those Friday nights were this kind of great coming together. Mm-hmm. We had a great time, played cards, ate pizza. And so it's fun. Yeah. You know, it's interesting about that generation. So I'd say my dad and your dad probably same age. My dad was born in 1919, fought in World War II. Wasn't really, I wouldn't say hardened. But I think about that a lot in the perspective that my dad didn't have any hobbies. <clears throat> my dad's hobby was to work. Yes, like, exactly. If my dad wasn't doing something, right. he was smoking yeah. cigarettes or digging <laughs> post holes or <laughs> fixing the roof. Or, yeah. yeah. You know what I mean? Like that's, that generation, that's, that's yeah. what they knew. 
was right. to work. There, there was yeah. no, and I'm thankful my dad was fine with me playing, but I think that's like, I remember he's like, mow the, make me mow the yard. I mean, that's, that's yes. what they knew how to do. They, yeah, Hey, we we're going to build a fence today. What the hell do we need a fence for? <laughs> yeah, I mean, in a lot of ways, I, he taught us work. Yeah. So that was a good thing, but there was also that element of you got to let kids be kids. And he didn't see that. Fortunately, my mother did. But yeah, he was the same way. He, and you know, that other thing about that generation is they were the like original recyclers. Yeah. They kept everything. Oh, God. Recycled Henry, everything. Used it, yeah. waste anything. Oh, yeah. <laughs> a lot of good lessons we learned from the Absolutely. great generation. Well, I think the work ethic thing, too, is yeah. I tell people a lot, like sometimes more is caught than is taught. And I think just seeing all that hard work, I know for us, I know you guys, all of us, like we just, there's just this thing. We just work hard. I mean, yeah. if something has to be done, you just do it. So, yeah. so, so, so D, let's go we'll jump back to Jill. <laughs> so, so Jill, you're graduating from high school and you went to the college in your home, in your town. I did. <laughs> what were you already thinking? Like, like this whole like marketing communications was that the was that where you were heading or did you start in nursing I started as a biology major okay and I took an econ class my first semester and a math class I tested into that was probably two or three levels above where I should have been so I must have guessed right on the entrance exam and I failed. So I basically failed two classes my first semester of college and then I took three more classes the second semester like English and history and something else that was like more like mm-hmm. normal classes. And I just, I mean, I was like, what am I doing here? Like this mm-hmm. just, I'm failing. Like I just didn't have a lot of good feedback from the experience at home. I didn't live on campus. I had established some friendships, so that was good. But at the end of the day, go back to that hard work comment. I just, all I knew was working. I'm like, I can work hard. And what if I was just a dental assistant? That would be great if I could just work full-time as a dental assistant. So I literally went on a job interview and the dentist met with me and he's like, I really like you and I want to hire you, but I'm not going to. And I said, why? And he goes, because you're going back to college. I'm telling you to go back. You need to go back. So he clearly saw something in me. And so I went home and I was all dejected and I was crying and my mom, again, no pity, And she was like, just go take a class you want to take. And I agree with them. You should go back to school. And so it was a smack smack. So you come by, you come by an honest is what you're saying. I do. (laughs) I do. And so I, I was basically like, okay. So I, I got my little, I had a little Navy blue four door, four speed, four on the floor Chevette. And I zipped around town in that car because I'm a fast driver. And I flew up to the campus three miles away. And I went and looked at what they were offering for summer classes. And there was a public speaking class. And I started that class like a week and a half later, I think. And I loved it. Hmm. I was good at it. I got an A on every presentation. I There was something that came alive in me hmm. when I was in front of a, an audience. And yeah. I was like, oh my gosh, this is amazing. And so then I started looking into like what other classes I should take. And then that I discovered communications as a major, but marketing was nowhere or advertising on my radar. It was like, oh, public speaking and group dynamics and organizational behavior and those types of classes. And that's really what my, and then I had to take like, you know, I ended up having to take a math class and I had to, you know, all the, the, 
yeah. you know, just pre-rec or the, sure. like the regular classes you had to take. But yeah, that, that was the turning point. Did you work in college? Did you pay for your college? I did. I had some help from family friends who had given me money over a number of years on birthdays mm. that I had saved in a bank account. Yeah. And living at home, my expenses were really low. Yeah. I needed 96 credits to graduate. And I kept a little homemade spreadsheet because I didn't have a computer. Like there were no computers then yeah. with Excel. And I made my own little spreadsheet on graph paper. And I checked off each semester the classes uh-huh. and the number of credits I took to see my progress as I went along. And I graduated in four years. Wow. Yeah. And, and did you go right to graduate school? No, I worked for six years, I think, before oh, I is. decided to go to graduate okay. school. Yeah. And then my company paid for it. So you graduated from college and what did you, where'd you go to work? I mean, you got a communications degree at this point. What, and you're in your hometown still, right? So where yep. did you go to work? So I had a friend who had a job at that time, part-time with EDS, Electronic Data yeah. Systems, Rothboro. Yeah. Yeah. And she worked in a call center for General Motors making outbound telemarketing calls. And she's like, oh, we're hiring. And so me and like, I don't know, three or four of us in the communications program interview, we all got the job. And I started and you had to wear a suit because it was the Ross Perot days. So your yeah. tag and your jacket uh, had to match your tag and your skirt. Like Granimals? Like Jones, New York, Jones, New York. Oh. Like it had to be like, Matt, like put it where, like mix it, match, yeah. suit jacket, yeah. and uh, yeah. pants or whatever. And so it was pretty. And all we did was sit at a desk all day and call people. And my first job was calling people who owned S10 GMC trucks that had navy blue paint and the paint was chipping because there was a defect. So there were thousands of customers that were put into the dialer that we wow. had to call. So that was my first like corporate job. And then I just grew into like temporary assignments. I would just raise my hand and take them. So I didn't have all with EDS. Those. All yeah. with EDS. Okay. And all GM. Yeah, they okay. were all GM assignments. And so okay. I would do like six months. I did a this will blow your mind, but I did a help desk assignment to see if I wanted to go into like like I I learned all about lands and that's funny. Really? Uh, like this boring. would probably be the late eighties, early nineties. Late 80s? Yeah, it was early 90s. Early 90s, yeah. And then I landed it. I worked on a marketing project. I landed in a role with GMC Truck that was more like a data, like I would handle data for marketing programs Hmm. with the programmers, with the data engineers, if you will. Kind of early database marketing efforts. And so I worked with their respective ad agencies that were also a part of these programs for GMC truck. And one of them was Darcy advertising because there was a woman who was an account supervisor there who it was a tandem promotion between Grand Am and GMC truck. And I was involved in it and she, we got to know each other and she called me one day and said, I'm leaving and going to Campbell Ewell on the Chevrolet business. And you'd be great backfill. I want you to interview for my job. And like, a couple of weeks later, I had her job and I doubled my salary overnight and boom, I was in an app, like a global, like big time advertising agency on a big piece wow. of business. Yeah. Wow. It was awesome. crazy. And that is where you, that's when you ended up going or at some point ended up going to get your master's. Yeah. Like I think in 1998, I started my master's program and it was because I had worked with somebody 
who went through the program I ended up in, which was mm. Michigan State Masters in Advertising. And at the time, it was the second top program in the country, wow. that, followed by UNC. Wow. And it was, I could do it at a Troy campus. So I literally like left work and went to class two nights yeah. a week. And I did it. I needed 63 credits to graduate. So I did it in one year. Gosh. Yeah. I worked wow. full time. Yeah. Did you, did you move to Detroit at this point? Were you living in Detroit? I was still in Rochester, actually, in the Rochester, Rochester okay. area. Okay. And then yeah, you got... I know you were married previously. So had you gotten married at that point? I was married. Yeah. You were married. Okay. So married, married working, yep. going to school. Yep. That's a lot going on and finishing your master's in a year. That's crazy. Yeah. Wow. yeah. So the eight- Jill did not venture far from her home site. She, yeah. She, until we moved to Knoxville, she pretty much lived in the same geographic area. Yeah, like yeah. the same 10 mile radius. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Really? Yeah. So did you... When you were living with what you just said, before you moved to Knoxville, were you still in Rochester or near Rochester? I was in that area. Okay. All right. I didn't like just it. a little north, but yeah. yeah right in the, okay. Yeah. Okay. Cool question I had that I was thinking of when you said that. Oh, so you were actually, you weren't employed by GM or anything. You were working for the agency that was working with GM. Okay. Correct. All right. Yeah. And what was the role you were in at that point? I was, my title was account supervisor. Okay. And you had for the GM business, you you had the GM business for that agency. And I worked, so I started working on Pontiac business and then I migrated to Good Ranch Service Plus. So I got, I had about three years of automotive service skill set as well. That's crazy. Okay. All right. We're flipping back to Dean. Dean, you go to this Central Academy of Commercial Art in Cincinnati. We called it Kaka, which is one thing that that people will learn is. Dean's sense of humor is amazing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah. Uh, I, I got out of school. So you graduated from Kaka. <laughs> got out of Kaka. Yeah. Deep Kaka. Yeah. Yeah. And so what, I mean, what do you like? I mean, you're in Cincinnati, so obviously Procter & Gamble, huge, is there. Uh, but what do you do? Yeah, I mean, here's the thing that I guess you learn this as you go. The school was a commercial art school, which meant that we learned, I'd say we touched on package design, logo design, architectural rendering, Hmm. life drawing, illustration, like every conceivable application of commercial art, we we had like this touch of. Okay. Like it's kind of the basics. Advertising was the last thing, was the second year that we did. So essentially when I got out of school, I was like a generalist with no experience. I had no specific kind of place that I saw that I wanted to work. I didn't know if I wanted to do logos or package design, or I really didn't know what to do. And they weren't really good about kind of guiding you in that way. So I didn't stay in Cincinnati. So I went, I moved actually back to Asheville for a very short time, lived with my parents. And I think yeah, the first job I got was a billboard company hmm. called Ben Blinn. And they had us, they painted their billboards in a studio. So you would hand paint, hand letter, hand draw. You were actually yes. painting the billboards. Yes. And it was like, <laughs> yeah. And it was like, I was a fish out of water. It's man. like Santa's elves. Yeah, that's exactly what it was. And the characters that worked there were like that. I mean, crazy. Yeah, it was like very blue collar. 
and just really like this. I'm like, this is what my career, my education has led to. Holy God. <laughs> the guy that ran the place, I'll never forget. He had, he was a Holocaust survivor. Wow. And he, he had the uh, numbers on his wrist. I mean, it oh was, my gosh, that's crazy. Yeah, this was, yeah. So it was a really interesting kind of start. And uh, I did that for a short time and then got another job in a kind of art capacity at a modular home factory. They had a two-man art department. I was man number two. <laughs> and then the factory went on strike and they told all the people in the office that they had to go make modular homes. Yeah. And I'm like, okay, this is, a, this is still not working for me. <laughs> so I hightailed it out of there. This is still in Ohio. In Columbus, yeah. Okay. I mean, it was, I just couldn't find, I just, I talked to ad agencies, I interviewed with ad agencies, and they had things called art studios back then that did kind of commercial art applications, but I just couldn't find anything. I don't know that my portfolio was great. I really don't know what the issue was, but I just, I scrambled and ultimately really just completely fell flat and ended up working at the Lazarus, which is a big retail store in Columbus. It's not there any longer. I worked in the sporting goods department. And then I found another job at an art studio, worked there a short time doing kind of menial labor, and then worked at the Holiday Inn on Ohio State's campus as a bellhop. So I was just doing whatever I could to just make a so living. This caca degree wasn't no, really moved. I mean, it lived up to its name, really. It's, it was, it really, and it, again, it wasn't that the education was bad, it was just so. It was so unfocused and yeah, they no they, guidance on where to yeah, go from you there. Just get out of there and you're like, okay, now what? So I'm, I'm almost working at this holiday inn and I'm like, I, this is clearly not working. I got to get out of here. And, I and, remember, and by the way, you were married before too, and you have kids. So at this point, were you married to? No, your I was, at point, I was 20 years old. Okay. I was still, it's only a two year school. So I was pretty young. So I'm in Columbus and I'm desperate to figure out something. And I remembered. Because I made a visit to Chicago when we were in college with some friends. We went there and, and there was a guy living there and working there that went to Kaka. And he was doing really well. He was uh, art director for J. Walter Thompson Advertising. He had done the My Baloney Has a First Name. Yeah, commercial. really? He yeah. did that? Yes. Yep. I mean, I can immediately, my baloney has the first name. It's, and his name it's was O-S-C-A-R. <laughs> his name was Larry Walters. And I That's knew awesome. him from school, but not really well because he was older and kind of in the second, third year. But I knew who he was. We So I had this big image as I'm sitting in Columbus of, oh, here's somebody who went to Kaka and who's doing well. Maybe I should move to Chicago. At this point, it can't hurt. So I loaded up uh, my car and my brother loaded up a U-Haul and we shipped off to Chicago. Did he go with you, Dale? He helped me move, but he, uh, he was, we weren't in stay long. <laughs> I don't know if it was the cockroaches or the dead fish <laughs> on the beach that chased him away. But the 70s, Dean? Mid-70s, yeah. Mid-70s, yeah. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, I didn't really have a plan. I just knew I needed to be in Chicago and figured that the opportunities were going to be much greater there. And I knew some had a big notion of some people there that were working. So I got there and took a job at a local pub called Moody's Pub, frying hamburgers, and took some classes at this Chicago Academy of Arts. 
and met Larry, who, you know, I reconnected with him and sat down with him one day. And I said, I, here's my story. He goes, well, you want to be an art director? And I'm like, okay, well, what do I have to do? He said, you need to have a portfolio of advertising. And I'm like, okay, well, what does that mean? He goes, you've got you've to make up campaigns for products and show people that you know how to do this. Hmm. So I knew how to render. I knew how to draw. I knew how to do storyboards. I knew how to yeah. do headlines and make ads. I mean, I had a sense of design and enough skill to go, okay. And so I spent the next probably year and a half working on my portfolio, bartending, cooking, doing drugs. Saturday Night Fever yeah, right here, baby. Yeah, <laughs> and interviewing and eventually got work. But it was really, really hard. And it's what I needed to go through. I knew that then it's like, I got to go through this. This is part of it. If I want to get there, I got to prove that I can do this. So yeah, a little bit of your dad work ethic, yeah, right? Like just yeah. bust it till you get there. Yeah, But I, I had a family going, what are you doing? What are you... <laughs> Why don't you figure out something else to do? I'm like, nope, I'm doing this. I am mm. going to get a job in advertising and you. you're not talking me out of it. So the breakthrough, I was working at one point, I got a job for this. It was called Flare Merchandising, but they were did kind of below the line stuff like shelf talkers and sheets, like secondary kind of stuff. Wasn't really what I wanted to do, but I got a phone call from Larry who said, hey, for Conan Belding, big agency in Chicago, they're hiring for a summer training program. And uh, so you should give Bruce Bendinger a call and see if you can get in. So I called him up. He went over to see him on a Friday. Bruce Bendinger was a creative director there. And he said, okay, here's the deal. You have a weekend to come up with three things. You have to take an advertising campaign that you like and show how you extend it. You have to take an advertising campaign that you don't like and show how you would fix it. And then you have to take, you need to develop a name a package and a campaign for a new beer, your choice of what it is. Wow. So I had Saturday and Sunday to do all of that. I never wow. slept. I drank coffee and did coke. Probably no, I don't think I, <laughs> I, I couldn't afford coke at that point. I stayed up all weekend and I'm like the old saying opportunity knocks once. Yeah. This was it. I knew it. I knew huh. that if I didn't get this job with this company at this time, that it was over. Hmm. And I busted my ass and walked in there and blew them away and got the job and started in this training program, which was phenomenal. Hmm. They brought people in from all over the world. That are this awesome. is a big agency, obviously. Big, this is big. really big. One of the big ones. Okay. Brought people in from all over the world, brought these trainees from all over the world, came together, spent three months learning every facet of the advertising business. Nobody does this, by the way. And yeah. no one did it then. This was very unusual. Huh. So it's just that I excelled. I was a little older than some of the people. I was hungry as hell. Mm -hmm. And I just busted my ass. On this mm. thing. A lot of these kids were like screwing around and now drinking and not showing up. And man, I was, I was there and I took this thing seriously. And then I got started on the staff after my three months. And it was just like a rocket ship from there for me. I just, I was so ready and so hungry that I just, like anything that I could do, I took on. 
any yeah. opportunity that I saw, I'm like, I'm going to do this and I'm going to make the best of this. And in a short time, I was working on some of the best business with the best people and never really turned back from there in yeah. terms of the advertising business. Yeah, I think something that's interesting, just to tie in both your stories, again, that I hear every single time that I think is lost on a lot of people anymore is there's really two things that I think I hear. One is just like tenacity. Like yes. I'm just, it's tenacity. And the second is you just kept raising your hand. I'll do yeah. it. Yeah. I'll do it. Yeah. I'll do it. And I think yeah. you hear a lot today. We hear a lot of negative about the current workforce and generation. So I right. don't want to overly disparage them, but I think yeah. there is a bit of a not, I'll take it. I'll try it. Give me a chance. More of like, no, I deserve a chance. Give me, I should already be in this position. Right. right? Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, but if you hear your story and people haven't heard the whole story yet, and there's a lot more to the story, but, and I hear that often, right. It's like, I hear everybody it's the, the theme is always, I worked really hard. Yeah. Now there's always somebody, there's people that supported me. So there are people that supported me in that process. You're Larry. I mean, that's a, yeah. a great example oh, yeah. of somebody that he said, no Hey, question. you should go do this. Yeah. You know, so in Dean's story, I think your mom and this, den and this dentist, or I mean, the fact yeah. that dentist was like, no, go to college is like, yeah. that's crazy. Yeah. And then you both just kept saying like, pick oh. me, I'll do yeah. it. You give me yeah. a chance. Yeah. I think that's really yeah. phenomenal. Dean, there's a, uh, if we fast forward, so yeah. you got married at some point, had yeah. kids, you have yeah. three, two daughters and a son, is that right? I have, yeah, actually twin daughters, they're fraternal twins, and then a son, yeah, they're, Hannah and Emily are 32, Hunter is 29, Hannah lives in San Francisco, Emily lives in Portland, Oregon, and my son lives in Columbus, Ohio, go Bucks. May anybody married at this point? They, no, one, Hannah's married, been married a couple years now, and then Emily is engaged, and and Hunter is, I'd probably say, soon to be engaged. Yeah, so, so, yeah. Is anybody calling you Grandpa, Pops, Poppy, anything? No, no. I don't think that's going to happen either. I don't think there are, none of them no, are interested no. in families. And right now, yeah. Emily might have been. I don't know if she still could be. But Maybe. Is it pretty normal for a twin to have twins? Is that pretty common? Well, in our case, identical twins are clearly just a happy accident. It's yeah, not right. Funny. Yeah. The genetic part of twins are fraternal twins, where the woman would produce multiple eggs. Yes, correct. And so, but in our case, it was um, fertility. Oh, fertility. Right? Okay, got it. Yeah, yeah. which so is we, pretty, twins wife, are pretty common. Uh, yeah. yeah, my first wife was getting older. We were both struggling. It wasn't happening. Went to see a fertility doctor and yeah. had multiples. Yeah. At what yeah. point in that story did you get married, Dean? Were you married at this point uh, when you just, the parts no, you just gave? No, I got married when I was like 29, I guess. Okay. So much right, later. later. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Right. No, I was, I didn't, I was just working, happily working. So well, I want to do two. I want to do two things. One is I want to, we, I want to get to the hard knock story because that's important, but I want to do two yeah. things on the way there. One is like, first, I want to know, I want you to tell everybody about your commercial in the Museum of Modern Art in New York City, because yeah. I think it's the one that, I think it's yeah. the one that I can think of. Well, let me go back a minute. Did, yeah. When Larry first, when you first got to Chicago, had Larry already done the Oscar Mayer? Fairly young to have done that. Oh yeah, no, and he's a few years older than me, but yeah, it was one of his first assignments. Yeah, yeah. Wow. I, mean, Do you, you know, I mean, the story briefly was nobody wanted to work on Oscar Mayer. Yeah, interesting. Because it was processed food, lunch, Bologna. meat. Yeah, yeah, it was considered kind of a subclass account, and yeah. young guys took it on. So yeah. opportunity knocked. So yeah. That's pretty cool. Yeah, that's, are you connected to him anymore at this point? Through Facebook. I mean, yeah. I wish, honestly, I wish I was better connected with him. He lives in Dallas, but yeah, he was, he was such a big influence in my yeah, life. Obviously yeah. huge. Yeah. yeah. Really. And also we just had a 
We have <laughs> um, being in your twenties in Chicago yeah. in the seventies. Yeah. Yeah. I'll tell you about New York with him and oh, a couple geez. other guys for the after Saturday Night Live party with all of the stars and Woody Allen and yeah, oh, wow. was, yeah, really? wow. yeah. Well, you eventually on your side, Dean, you ascended pretty much like I know pretty big agency. I think you became the creative director, right, for a fairly art director or something? Uh, or? Well, you start out at you know, the progression is art director, then the next level is like creative director, then there's group creative director, and then executive creative director. And I went through that. I went through all those titles. Yeah. And what was the agency, the big agency you're working for? They did the Coors business, right? If well, the first, Foot Cone and Belding in Chicago was the Coors account. Okay. And they, that was, they had come to us to pitch expanding Coors uh, east of the Rockies. Okay. So this was, again, in the early 80s, Coors was just a, they were only distributed west of the Rockies and they decided they wanted to be national. And so, yeah, that was my first big opportunity and did a you know campaign with Mark Harmon and did a just did a really huge success and that was just great fun and that uh, was the campaign because a few people well, remember the course life <laughs> campaign that came after that was the world's most refreshing beer uh, is that which, the one that's in the yeah. in the is that the commercial no, no, uh-uh. no? the museum oh. of modern art I, I did a spot in, in New York for McCann Erickson for Motorola oh really and you, it's on YouTube if you look it up it's called Wings Huh. And briefly, I was sitting at my desk one day and they said, hey, we have an opportunity to pitch Motorola. We got two weeks. And I'm like, holy God, now what? And it's an international, <laughs> international. Were you, the, were you art director, creative director? What I was were creative you director. I was a, considered a group creative director. Okay. But I was still doing the work. I wasn't just managing necessarily at that point. But Motorola hadn't really done a lot of marketing, but they wanted a worldwide kind of international campaign. So they needed a campaign that would translate globally and they needed it in two weeks if we were going to win this pitch. So I'm sitting there in my office and I'm looking at the Motorola logo and I'm like, Oh, that M looks like a pair of wings. Hey, cell phones, pagers, two-way radios, they basically give you wings. Mm-hmm. It's unconnected communication. There are no wires. So I came up with this idea that Motorola gives you wings and we mm-hmm. did a campaign based on that. And sold it, won the business, and we did a 60-second spot and a bunch of other things ran around the world. We used the Rolling Stones, you can't always get what you want. Hmm. It cost them $3 million for that track and performance rights. That's crazy. And we shot the campaign in Barcelona for two weeks. So it was like a $6, $7 million campaign. Jeez, that's Uh, wild. So that's in the Museum of Modern Art. If you look it up on YouTube, you'll see why. And that... I don't want to take a lot of credit for how beautiful it is, but the cinematographer was fantastic. It's wow. just great, uplifting footage. That's awesome. That, yeah, that is definitely museum worthy. So, yeah. And you're responsible for the world's most refreshing beer. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you always smirked at when I told you that. But yeah. Was, I love, well, I'm not a course life fan. I know. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I did a number Silver of bullet, things. Maybe. Yeah. <laughs> I did a number of things over the years. But, you know, the thing about advertising, and you're, oh, I mean, you're always, we were always doing, going out and shooting and doing spots, but you always are looking for kind of those big moments where you can really capitalize and yeah. do something that's ultimately famous. And so those are kind of few and far between, that's but I had a cool. couple of them. Yeah. yeah. What's going on with animals in your life now? Do you still have the same dog? 
Yes. I just was holding her as a matter of fact. She's 10 and she, we walk every morning together and people Uh think she's a puppy. She's got good energy and she's still healthy and she's not overweight. Yeah. What about the cats? Are they, did they make the trip to Tampa? The cat did not make the trip. It's, I have a broken heart. I found, I rehomed him and he lives with a really lovely couple, a neighbor. Her mom was looking for a cat. They live on five acres in Louisville. Louisville, yeah. Yeah. And they, like, out of the blue, she told her daughter, Natalie, I think I want to get a cat. And then, like, literally a couple days later, I was like, Hey, I need to rehome my cat. <laughs> Sonny, Sonny loves being outside. He was an oh, indoor yeah. outdoor. Yeah. And yeah. here we can't have an outdoor. So we, yeah. it was a tough decision, but he would have been miserable inside. I know it yeah. was the right decision for him. Like he's right. living his best life yeah. and yeah. probably doesn't even miss us, but I'm in it terribly. <laughs> like my heart is just broken oh. from, and I watch cat videos like crazy because I miss my cat so much. That's so funny. I drive these nuts. So uh, more ways than one. All right. So Jill, I think you were obviously ascending through the agency ranks too, but eventually ended up on the corporate side. How did that happen? I did. I was so five years into my time at Darcy, I knew people in the GM orbit, if you will. And somebody said, you should apply for this job at OnStar. And it's a relationship marketing manager job and you'd be perfect for it. And I'm like, okay. And a couple of weeks later, I had the job. And I mean, it's just like stuff like that just kept happening for me. And and I spent five years at OnStar and then ended up taking the role of ad manager at Buick, which really was very much in line with my advertising degree and what I thought I would want to pursue longer term. And I knew I kind of needed that role to help round out my skill set. I had a lot of the relationship marketing, database marketing, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. I hadn't really done pure straight up advertising, marketing, brand strategy at that point. So I launched vehicles and I was going to say, what does an advertising manager at a car manufacturer do? So we launched like the Buick Lucerne, the Buick Enclave. So the car comes to fruition Mm. from engineering and then it's our job to create a market for it. Basically. We are almost like product marketing managers for the particular brands. Okay. And so I work closely with the advertising agency because they also helped us with our brand strategy, basically put the whole brand strategy together. And then we would, and then they would hand it off to like Dean and his team. And then he and his team would come up with concepts, which client side would choose. And then we go shoot the commercials. Wow. And did you do all the ad buying and all that stuff too? Is that part of the job at that level? It Yes. So I didn't do that work, but I was the ad manager responsible for making sure that work happened. So we had a different media agency at the time that was, was called Media Works. And it was like this conglomerate for GM brands for General Motors as a corporation to reach out to their Media Works agency partner. And I think they got ultimately bought out by Publicis or one of the really big corporate holding companies, if you will. But yeah. One thing I think it's always interesting about the agency side, you said it a minute ago, Dean, is like, it's an interesting business because you go pitch without knowing you're good. So you spend all this time, energy, even like brand, you build a brand, like all this stuff. And they're just like, no, we're going to need somebody else. Like it's pretty wild. You spend a lot of money, a lot of time, a lot of energy and for the most part, they own whatever you pitch them. Yeah, it's crazy. Mine or not. So it's 
Yeah. It's uh, yeah, that's it's a uh, it's really when I was in New York, that's 90% of what I did is pitched. Wow. Yeah. That's wild. Yeah. I'm loving this, spending time uh, just unpacking the Hard Knock story and specifically Jill and Dean's story. Stay tuned for episode two as we're going to delve into actually starting Hard Knocks and the demands of a business, the demands of a restaurant on their marriage and their relationship and ultimately leading to deciding uh, to sell Hard Knocks to my wife and myself, which is a fun story to be a part of and tell on this podcast. 